as I prepared to preach this morning and I sat with this text from Matthew, I was reminded of when I was in seminary and I took my first semester of New Testament and was taking the exams actually right about this time it would have been in 2009. And on one of the first questions, and New Testament one covers the Gospels, and maybe gets into Acts. And I remember one of the questions, one of the questions early on in the exam asked about where in the Gospels God was referred to, or Jesus was referred to as Emmanuel. And it was one of those where it was like, I know it's Matthew or Luke, Luke, Matthew or Luke, but I didn't remember. So I went with Luke. And then there were probably three or four questions throughout the exam that referred back to this that I would have needed to have known because there was like a quote in in the past, right, something. So I ended up missing four questions, you know, whichever. I was like, I'm going to commit, I'm going to commit. And it was funny because each time my New Testament professor, Francis Taylor Ginch, had written, Matthew, Matthew, with exclamation points next to. And I was like, yeah, I know, but I committed, I committed. And yet I was wrong in that commitment. And I share that maybe because sometimes I think it's helpful to hear somebody preaching to talk about when they were wrong. Maybe it's just a good story as a way of introducing us into the text today. Or maybe it's just a way of kind of maybe me sharing the ways in which Emmanuel really got kind of pressed into my brain. And that I don't have any idea what I made on that exam. I know I did well enough in the class to be able to, to move on and that I'm sitting here before you today. But I do remember Emmanuel. And, and what I love about holding these texts to, together today, the text from Exodus and then the text from Matthew, is that it shows such a clear parallel and helps us get into, I think, the mind of those gospel writers of Matthew, who were, as I've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, in a predominantly Jewish audience, who were there and trying to understand this event that was coming into being that had been promised, and how to make sense of it when this new person, because right, the gospel writers were writing this after Jesus's life. This wasn't written in real time. We don't actually know the circumstances surrounding Jesus's specific birth. That's actually not as important as the story that we tell and the way that we understand our place within the story, which is exactly what Matthew is doing when he is telling the story of Jesus as he was born. And those magi coming from the east and a a ruler who has nothing but a, a lust for his own power that blinds him to such an extent that he is willing to obliterate the lives of children. And in both of these stories, what I love is the unexpected and yet consistent ways in which God shows up. And what I love about holding these stories together is that as you're hearing it, if you think about it, you can start to hear the origin stories. If you talk to, to, to most people, I would say, I, I, the way I've understood it, pretty much all people, Jewish people, right, the story of Moses is fundamental. The Shema, remember what I have done, is the core of Jewish scripture. When God says, remember, 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 that remembering is very specific to freedom from the enslavement under the Egyptians, but to the person of Moses who embodied the Spirit of God to such an extent that he was able to take those people out of those impossible circumstances, literally through parting of of waters, right, cutting through into a new land toward Israel. And so then, if you're thinking about it, for us here today, we get to see our origin story as a people of faith. We get to see this story of Jesus 
who comes in, who is born into this world that has no room for him. We don't, I don't even mean the end. We'll get there next week. But that in this world where there is no room for someone who is being born for this energy that is coming into the world that is so transformative that it will upturn all of the known power structures that are there. When Herod is frightened, he is frightened because this child is the fulfillment of something that he knows about. But he gathers with those who are in power to talk about how to wipe out this threat to their power. Who does he gather with? But the religious leaders. He gets together. And so if we're going to read this today, what do we say about this kind of birth that's coming into the world? This kind of new life that's coming into the world? Who's threatened by that life coming into the world? And so as we read it today, basically I read this as if we're talking about church folks, right? When we talk about Matthew a lot of times as a gospel, Matthew as a gospel has been the one that has been used to justify a lot of anti-Semitic rhetoric. That is not the way Matthew was intended to be written. Matthew was intended to be written for Jews trying to understand the experience of Christ. And just like for us today, if I were going to write a gospel today, no, I'm not going to write a gospel today. That is not, we are living a gospel today. But if I were going to have strong words about the ways in which power had been corrupted and obstructed and used to oppress, those I would have the strongest language for would be my Christian kindred. Because the reality is that, for one, I'm a Christian. And I recognize within my own religious tradition the ways in which the language of Jesus has been corrupted, has been twisted. So part of it is for me, I'm going to be authentic by speaking to my family. Because that's how I can and who I can speak to. It's also the language I know. I'm going to speak in my own language in that way. So what Matthew is doing is speaking in the language that the Jews would understand. To say this is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. I know that things are difficult that circumstances seem impossible, that these power structures that are overtaking you, that feel like they are overtaking you, that have convinced you they are overtaking you, that are not all that is. There is this attempt to say, no, this is the fulfillment. God, who is here, who has always been here, who has always been with us, is with us still, is with us in this new way but is the fulfillment of what we have been promised, what we have been shown, and what we have experienced together. The Hebrew word for the basket that, that Moses is sent down the river in is the same as that of the ark. So there is this protection already in those already known stories that God has protected us from even the most torrential things, and we'll get into the ark, that's a whole other conversation, but there is a deep, deep sense of protection from all of the elements. So there is that sense of remembering, even within that story, that we then get to participate in today. If we can allow ourselves to be still enough, I know it keeps getting back to stillness, y'all, but it really does, to recognize the movement of God in and through us, and in and through our own lived experiences. And I say stillness because that is the space where we can occupy being. The number of times dreams come in to the scripture today is worth noting. I think I counted five, and I, we can go through, somebody can check me on that. It's not about the specifics, it's about these repeated things that keep coming in, right? Again, if you're talking to a Jewish audience, the language of dreams was very familiar. In fact, there was another, Joseph, who was a dreamer. 
He had a coat, lots of colors. He was the dreamer. He was thrown out by his family, by his siblings. He was then rescued and saved, carried by the Ishmaelites into Egypt, where he then served the Pharaoh. The pivot in the beginning of Exodus is that there's no longer a Pharaoh looking out for Joseph, which means the Hebrew people are in trouble. So then you go all the way up to the New Testament, and who do we have but another Joseph who's getting dreams? This is the first time we meet Joseph, if Mark, depending on when Matthew was written and when Luke was written. There is a reason that these stories are told, and it is not about getting into the nitty-gritty of the specifics, though I think God does show up in the specifics. God definitely shows up in the specifics, but it is about recognizing the continuation of God's presence in caring for those who are willing and able to hear that presence of God. Now, last week, as we talked about Moses, when he left and goes and meets God for the first time and says, who am I to say sent me? God says, I am. God is in being. And now we have God is Emmanuel. I am with you. God with you. How do we experience God? We cannot hustle enough to experience God. We can't actually praise God enough to experience God. We can't sing enough into experiencing God. Those things help. They definitely help. They get us into that awareness and into that. But ultimately, the invitation is to start from the foundation of the recognition that God is already here. God is already in all that we are, all that we say, all that we do. I know all that we say, that's challenging. And I'm going to hold on to that, actually. Because I struggle sometimes with the things we say. And I struggle sometimes with the things I say. I definitely struggle with the things I hear. And I don't know where God is to be found in those things. But I do and I know and I trust that when I am able to be, when I am able to find that stillness and that presence, when I am able to find that rhythm of my own breathing, then the things that people may say or do that wouldn't quite jive with my understanding of God tend to fade into a whole lot of the noise of things that are just part of what is if that makes sense. It's just something happens, right? People do hurtful things. People say hurtful things. People say kind things. People do remarkably kind things. We have this amazing ability to, to, to transcend our own capacity as humans for cruelty, yes, but also for joy, for transformation. And I believe that begins with the recognition that there is nothing that we have to do to actually earn our place into God's presence. That the invitation for us is to recognize that God is always there, is always with us, is always in us, will always carry us through. And that God will show up in those moments. If only we have just a moment, a shred of capacity to open our eyes. And I'd like to close today with a, a kind of a, a vulnerable story of mine about a difficult time in my life, but I'm sharing it because it was one of the most profound experiences that I've had around the presence of God. And, and I've shared this last week, I shared around God, my dad showing up in the birds, which actually I want to hold real quick, because I want to go back to the Magi really quickly before we close out, because I think one of the things that we really miss in both of these stories is how radical it is that both the midwives, they get that hookup right? So it ends up so that Moses is not only nursed by his own mother, but she is paid to nurse him. 
That's some magic that's working there, right? So not only, I mean, all of those things, there's this interplay. He then has an understanding of who he is and yet has this connection to power that actually enables him to transcend and deconstruct those very power structures, which I think is worth naming. And then as we go into the New Testament, and these are magi, these are astrologers. These are people who understand what they're doing with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Not just as fancy things from a story because they didn't exist as fancy parts of that story now. They were alchemists. They understood what these materials did in the way that so often if you go to an al like any alchemical shop now, you can talk to people who will, an apothecary, and they will say, oh, if you're feeling this, this is what you need. Frankincense enhances the, um, our spiritual connection. And I'm going to misspeak this when I'm talking about frankincense and myrrh. I know I'm going to get them backwards. And myrrh is cleansing. Am I correct on that? We'll, we'll look into that. But there are elemental properties that had to do with the body. These were people who understood non-Western medicine, right? This is Western medicine didn't exist then, right? These were people who understood an embodied approach to the way our earth and our bodies interact together. It was a radical thing. These were not good Jews, right? They were not church-going people who came out, right? This is if I had a child right now and people came and what we may understand as a witch doctor came in and offered a blessing of my child. This is the same extent of those things. And if I am not able to see God's movement in and through that, then that's an invitation for me to expand my view of how I see God working the world. So in this text, it's important not only that they're outsiders, but also that they completely defied the will of the emperor and the pharaoh. These are the two people who have the most power in either of these situations to impact the lives and the bodies of the people who are the heroes of our story. And they listen to their dreams instead, and they listen to their intuition instead. So as we move through this story, as we move through this season, we are invited to do the same. And the only way we're going to learn to listen to our intuition again is to be still. Our intuition never speaks from a place of anxiety. It never speaks from a place of shame. It never speaks from a space of scarcity or I just got to get done right now. That is not your intuition. And I will promise you that even just giving a morsel of space, just that little tiny speck to open up to the possibility of the reality of God is enough for God to work with. So back to the story, the difficult story. So this is a story actually about the last time that I said that I wanted to die. And it was actually on November 26th of last year. Um, now, as I mentioned, last year was a particularly difficult time for me. And I'm somebody who I have a, I'm an Enneagram 4, so I'm full of my feelings and I love my feelings. And I've had a lot of therapy, so that's all great. But I was going through a really difficult time in a way that I think many of us have gone through difficult times in the last couple of years, where we really had moments where we're like, I don't know how I'm going to do this anymore. And I woke up on a trip with my partner and we were a couple of hours outside of Richmond near Douthat State Park in Lexington, staying right on at a Howard Johnson on the interstate. I woke up that morning and I was going through, just working through a lot of old trauma, old stuff, old pain that would sort of show up in your body when sometimes maybe if you wake up and you don't know why, but you're just, like the way I'd kind of said it is I never heard the trigger, but I felt the shot come through and I just woke up feeling all sorts of off and grumpy and down and overwhelmed. And my partner said something to me and I kind of barked back at them, a short answer. I just said something short and kind of rude and immediately felt this overwhelming sense of shame. And I said, I'm just so overwhelmed. I just want to die. I had this moment. And I sat down and I took a breath, took a few breaths, kind of found my way back to center. We gathered ourselves. About 30 minutes later, we get in the car and we're going to drive out 
and drive the half hour trip out to the state park so we can go hike for the day. And we're all settled and everything. As we're driving, we're pulling up to the interstate and there's one other car at the intersection. And it's a gold Prius and we pull up right behind it. And the gold Prius has a bumper sticker on it that says, along for the journey. And what's notable about this bumper sticker is that I am actually the person who designed it. It was a bumper sticker I'd designed years before when I was working here in Richmond at Side by Side, organization for LGBTQ youth, and I did all our communication stuff. And I designed these bumper stickers specifically, specifically to let LGBTQ people know that they were not alone, and particularly in those moments when they felt most isolated. So there I was on November 26th of 2021, two hours outside of Richmond, sitting right behind a car with a bumper sticker I had designed. And I looked at my partner and I said, is that, is that real? And they said, yep, that's real. And I said, okay. And I had a moment when I thought, if whatever it is, whatever that energy or source is, whatever God is, if it knows me well enough to know that the only words I am going to hear right now are my own. And if that same energy or source or God is willing to put my own words right in front of me, then I think I can stick around to see what other kind of magic can be made. Now, I firmly believe that part of that experience for me was an affirmation to keep moving. And I also firmly believe that the biggest invitation was for me to have so that I could share it with you all as well. Because what I am finding is that through this journey, the reality of God is the most consistent and persistent thing I have found, period. And this is new. This is post-seminary. This is midway through like the second year of COVID, right? So this is new. And I say this as a way of inviting you also to see that there is no way that God is not with us. There is no way that God is not with you. And to put in a more affirming way, I will say the only reality that I would invite you to carry with you today, every day, is the reality of God who loves and holds and provides for you and will continue to do so, often in the most unexpected ways and places, and yet continually. All you need to do is stop. Amen.